<clears throat> so good to see you. This is exactly what we expect. It's just a beautiful Albuquerque day, and it's so good to be home and to be among you and to celebrate that this time with you. I'm sitting in a, in a coffee shop in Lagos, Nigeria. I'm surrounded by a couple of church planting pastors. One of them is one of the most uh, brilliant, gifted uh, young church planters that uh, I've ever recognized. And he was, uh, we were talking about our story. We were explaining it to the group of you know, those young church pa- you know, planters and, and pastors. And so we talked about the church that we had planted in Austin. And uh, someone else mentioned a church that we had planted in Albuquerque. And uh, they said, what is the name of that church? And uh, we said, uh, you know, Desert Springs. And they said, no, Desert Springs? It, it turns out that these young church planting pastors in Lagos, Nigeria, have been deeply encouraged by Claris. Uh, they have found <laughs> deep theological uh, foundations for ministry, you know, in places where they don't have the resources. Also sitting, um, we have just moved into a new building where we are. And uh, as we moved in, we tried to build bridges, you know, to our community. And so we told, you know, the neighborhood association, since we were driving trucks through there every day and leaving mud on their streets and all of those kind of good things, we told them we would do anything we could to serve them. Uh, it turns out that they did an annual Easter egg hunt and they'd had a few, you know, kids come and, and be a part of that. And they uh, came to us and said, could you do this for us? And they said, after all, it is your holiday. And I said, well, that's... Uh, <laughs> Not exactly how we celebrate that holiday, <laughs> but we would be happy to do that for you. Uh, Cindy sat down you know, with one of the members of the Homeowners Association and began to talk to her, and this always happens when Cindy is in conversation, uh, it, it turns to Christ. And, and the lady talked about you know, her church experiences in Austin and how they were not you know, deeply you know, satisfying to her. And she began to talk longingly about a time that she was a part of a church that deeply ministered to her heart and ministered in grace. And as she described the church, it just seemed so vaguely familiar. And finally, she said, where was that church? And she said, Albuquerque, New Mexico. What was the name of that church? Desert Springs. Sitting with another church planter at another coffee shop, and in case you're catching a pattern here, I'll do a lot of stuff in coffee shops. And we're talking about our story, and we're sharing our story. We're talking about Christ Church uh, in Austin. And uh, he said, what did you, you know, do before that? And uh, we talked about uh, you know, this church plant. And he said, Desert Springs? Really? Desert Springs? Can I take your picture? And I said, no. Uh, <laughs> he took my picture anyway, and uh, he sent it to Nathan Sherman. And, of course, Nathan and Clint came to Albuquerque. We sat down, had barbecue on the river. And uh, we talked about this church. This is a significant church. You have had impact all over the world. There's a rare church. There's a church that deeply loves the scripture, teaching it with theological depth. It loves, you know, God-honoring worship. Uh, to sing is not to simply, you know, go deep into our own feelings, but to look up into the grandeur and the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is a church that has had impact and Obviously, this is not the reason I'm here, uh, but I'm, I'm all in for what's next. Uh, this is a church that's a significant church. This is a church that's a rare church. Uh, this is a church that has blessed so many. And I would encourage you deeply in worship and in prayer and in sacrifice 
<laughs> to open your hearts to the leadership of the church and to make room for what God is doing here so that he'd be glorified in that. This all started <laughs> right over here in Village Inn. It was drawn out on a napkin. Uh, George Sanchez was sitting across the table from me. Many wanted George Sanchez, at that time 65 years old. He seemed so old back then, so young now. <laughs> Many wanted him to plant a church. He, he looked at me, I was in my 20s, and he said, why don't you do it? And, and we began to talk about that, and we began to gather people who had a similar vision. We began to talk about, you know, what church could be. We began to see a, a higher vision. And we began to talk about, you know, what Christ could do through a church that was deeply dedicated to his word, deeply dedicated to hearing his spirit, deeply dedicated, you know, to serving this community for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we began to, you know, talk to other friends, and it grew. And I, I remember we wrote handwritten notes, you know, just to our friends, saying, we're, we're starting a church, come hear what we're talking about. And so in the first gathering, uh, you know, of this church, there were 60 people. We thought, that is fantastic. We, we can do this. There are 60 people. And then we had our first worship service, which is 30 years ago today. And there were 11 people that came <laughs> to that. And we started to build from there. We're meeting in a garage, a renovated garage. And um, as we're meeting in that garage, we, we outgrew the garage. And we're wondering where we might you know, eventually end up. I happen to have a club membership over at uh, River Point Racket Club. I, I knew the owners, and, and I was going to ask them, you know, if we could, uh, you know, meet upstairs in the aerobic room. And uh, as I was working out, you know, Susie came to me. Susie Hudson came to me, for those of you who, are, who know her. And she said, Paul, what are you doing these days? And we talked about you know, the church and how it was being planted. And she said, you should meet here. And uh, there's another prayer that was answered, and we, we met there. I love the racket club, our numbers were incredible there because we had mirrors on every side and for everybody that was there, <laughs> you saw them five times. Not everything was easy. It was there at the racket club, we had our first train wreck. It was a, I don't know, artistic differences, theological differences. Uh, governance differences, young people who, who, who knew that they wanted something more but were flailing or immaturity, you know, may have taken over. I remember a group of men, you know, sat down with me and uh, explained everything that uh, they didn't like about our leadership and about where we were going and what we were doing with the church. And uh, they happened to have the checkbook with them, which is bad news. Good news, there was nothing in the checking account. And they made an offer, we'll, we'll run the church, you do the preaching. And, uh, you know, for me, I just said, that, that's, that's, not, that's not it. That's not it. It's not time. And, and so I was willing, you know, to let it, uh, you know, let the patient die on the table because it, it just, you know, wasn't what we, we thought it could be. I remember I went over, you know, afterwards, you know, to Calvary Chapel, you know, where George Sanchez, we owe so much to George Sanchez. Guy had a remarkable life before he ever, you know, became an elder here. He was part of, uh, you know, the movement in Ecuador, you know, with Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott. I don't know if you know that. Uh, he himself, you know, was not um, part of the movement that, the, you know, that, that, that they did there. He had been stoned. He had been left outside of a village, you know, direct outside of a village. 
uh, and rejected from the village. He had lived, you know, several lifetimes before he came here. And, and he was, you know, the foundation of this church. He was the mature man among a bunch of kids. And, and how great it was. And he gave us this beautiful, beautiful, uh, you know, godly, um, godly foundation. You know, people would come to him, you know, to complain about me. And he would say, what, what did, uh, you know, Paul say when you talked, you know, to him? He said, well, we, we hadn't really talked to him. We wanted to talk to you. And he said, no, go talk to Paul. And then I would go and sat down in front of George, and I'd complain about some of the people in the church. And he would say, what did they say when you went to talk to them? And I said, I'm not talking to them. I'm using them as an illustration in Sunday's, <laughs> Sunday's sermon. But it was, it was beautiful. You know, in that night, uh, we had several people leave the church. Uh, I went and I sat in the back of this cavernous, you know, Calvary Chapel Auditorium. I listened to George preach. Um, he met everybody down front and, and ministered to everybody down front. And uh, pretty soon it was just the two of us left in this huge cavernous space. He said, how do you feel? I said, I feel like somebody just punched me in the gut. And he put his arm around me and he said, it's going to be okay. We showed up Saturday, you know, to set up in the racket club. And that had always been a joyous time in the life of the church. Uh, you know, as we got together and as we put together the stage and we got ready. This was the first time in the life of the church nobody showed up for setup. It was just Cindy and I in April. And Ryan, it took us hours, you know, to set up the stage. And to set up, and, and we cried. Yeah, we set up on Sunday. Drew, I, I led the worship that Sunday. It was incredible. Uh, no, it was opposite of that. <laughs> Uh, we uh, slowly people trickled in. I, I don't know if you know Bill and Gayla Reed. <laughs> Bill and Gayla Reed walked up the stairs, and the, you know, Gayla is not, I don't know how well you know Gayla, but Gayla's not the one you turn to for comfort. Uh, you know, Gayla, uh, Gayla just has this thing, okay, we just spilled a lot of milk. You know, let's clean it up and, and, and let's, let's, let's go. And she walked up there with you know, an admirable smile. And then Bill sat down, you know, in the back of the building. And as he sat down in the back of the building, he sat down and just kind of winked at me and nodded his head. And that was the first Sunday that George and Florine, uh, you know, came to join Desert Springs and to be a part of us as we, uh, you know, established elders. And, and, and from there, we had, you know, wonderful times. Not all of them, you know, not all of them were. Um, not all of them were easy. It wasn't without a lot of pain. We sit here with a lot of sorrow today, knowing that not everybody made the journey with us. You know, that many have fallen away. But God has been so good. Uh, he has been, you know, so deeply rich. I remember, you know, the very first, you know, sermon I preached to 11 people 30 years ago. Uh, we, we went to Acts chapter 2, and, and verses 42 through 47, and of course you're, you're deeply familiar with that. The church is formed and it's been given birth, you know, through the Holy Spirit and the power of the risen Christ. And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and prayer, and describes wonderfully what the Spirit is doing among that community, that everyone was in awe, that they held all things in common, and they sold their property and gave to everyone who had need. 
and they were receiving, you know, their bread together in the house, and they were glorifying and praising God, and the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. And we, and I said, here is the kind of church that, that we want to be. We want to be a, a teaching church. We want to be a church that is deeply settled in, in the apostles' teaching. We want to be a, a, a worshiping church. We want to be a church who is moving beyond some of the sentimental, you know, things in worship that we were seeing. It's moving deeply into the presence of Christ. Worship that lifted our eyes, uh, you know, to him and to behold him. People who were praising and, and glorifying God. We wanted to be a praying church, knowing that the only hope we had was to lean deeply into him and to sense his leadership and sense of the, the Holy Spirit. And we wanted to be an influential church. We wanted to be a church because of who we were and the Christ that we represented that the Lord saw fit to add to us daily those who were being saved. And of course, here you are, all grown up. So what do I, what do I say to you today? Three things. We live in hard times. We have an incredible heritage, and we have a noble calling. And, and of course, that's the message of, of Second Timothy. Second Timothy is one of the richest you know, books in the, in the New Testament. Uh, we've lost track of the Apostle Paul. Uh, the last time uh, we knew anything about him, he was in a prison in a house arrest in Rome. He had written to Philemon with the hope that he would soon be coming and ask that a guest house would be prepared for him. Uh, he had was released, and he may have had an you know, incredible fruitful ministry in a lot of other places. We like to imagine that eventually he got to Spain as we was longing to get to Spain. We, we have no idea whether he got there or not, but somewhere, probably in Troas, he's been rearrested, and this time the treatment is not nearly you know, as friendly. He is in a, a prison. He is dictating this in the darkest bowels of Rome. He's probably dictating to Luke, who is the only one with him. Many have who had been faithful through all of those years, Demas in particular, and Colossians and Philemon, he talks about as a, a faithful co-worker in Christ, had abandoned him because he fell in love with things of this world. And, and so this is both a lonely moment for, you know, for, for Paul and this is a hopeful moment for Paul. He talks again about being rescued, but the way that he talks about being rescued is completely different than he's ever talked about being rescued before it's being delivered to his heavenly home. As he writes in this letter, one of the most precious gifts we have. I know we love Romans because we get deep into the theology of Paul, but uh, you have to love Second Timothy because you find yourself deep in the passion of Paul. And he's about to pass this thing on. And as he passes this thing on, he, he, he writes these words. I wanted to do the whole book of Second Timothy. Uh, I'm just going to do chapters 3 and 4. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to 2 Timothy 3 and 4. And we're just going to move through on a high-level uh, exposition of these passages. I want you to sense Paul's burden you know, as he, he looks ahead to the future of the church. So I'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. <clears throat> but understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty for people who will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, 
not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these women also opposed the truth, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, uh, but they will not get very far, for their folly uh, will be plain to all. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that have happened to me in Antioch and Iconum at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet through them all the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have been firmly convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have been acquainted with the Holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for repute, for correcting, for training in righteousness. The men of God may be completely equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, and having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me in that day, and not only to me, but to all who, who love his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Paul first reminds us, you know, that uh, we, we live in difficult times. In verse 1, he tells us, but understand this, in the last days, uh, there will be times of difficulty. And, of course, when Paul describes the last days, he's describing to Timothy the very days that Timothy is living in. It's not as sometimes we, you might project to the, the very last few moments of this age when things will get in a very intense, uh, but it's the very age that, that we live in now are known as last times because there is something epochal that has taken place. Christ Jesus has invaded time and space and has begun to reclaim all of creation as the Lord of creation. And that's why when it's described what has happened to us, we can describe it in these terms, that if any of us is in Christ Jesus, we're what? We're a new creation in him. The old is gone and the new has come. And, and of course, we live in an age where, where the old has gone. Things will never be the same because Christ has invaded this space and Christ is ruling and Christ is reigning. And one day Christ will reclaim everything that is his and everything that belongs to the creator God. He is doing in us what he will one day do with, with all of creation. So we're living in the last days. And, and the foe has been defeated, but he is also in his final death throes. 
And so these will be difficult times. These will be devastating times in the original languages. These will be brutal times. It will become more and more difficult to be the people of God. And, and notice you know, how he describes it. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He, he gives us, you know, 19 in a different, in a traits. This is kind of an interesting thing, by the way, of art. There are six words in here that you find nowhere else in literature. Paul is creating, you know, here. Uh, he is you know, free-flowing, talking about, you know, uh, the depth of our depravity and the depth of the world, you know, that we live in. By way of art, he's doing something that is kind of interesting. There, there, there's kind of a chiastic pattern here, and I know you guys know a lot about, you know, design patterns in Scripture. In other words, when we outline, we have the little Harvard outline, and we go A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and get, you know, 19, you know, 19 traits. <clears throat> the way, you know, a Hebrew mind would work, <laughs> the way that you would outline is item number, you know, one matches item number 19, item number two matches uh, item number 18, item you know, number three matches, and, and you go all the way down, and your outline is coming to a fine point, and, and the fine point that is right in the middle of this, if you trace this all the way out, is the word for slanderous. And if you see it in that little outline that I just so beautifully drew up for you, you've seen it right there, right? You see it in that little outline, it would be the word diabola, which, which is, you know, you, you're catching a hint of something. Uh, you're catching a hint of a description of the enemy of our souls uh, who is the slanderer, who, who slanders, uh, you know, God to his people Surely you do not want to risk everything to follow him. And he slanders his people back to God. Surely you do not want to die for her. And yet Christ in his love says, I do. And, and when you look at it, you look at those you know, first couple of items and the last you know, two items and you begin to get the feel for this whole thing. For people who be lovers of self, lovers of money, and then notice the very last two items, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so what we will encounter in these last times, you know, more than anything else, is misplaced love. It's a self-protective love that turns in on self, turns in on pleasure, holds fastly to the things you know, that we have. And because we hold fastly to the things that we have, our confidence is in ourselves. our confidence becomes in the things of this world, and there's a slow downward spiral that takes place. And, and here is the heart of it in verse 5. It says, they're having the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. In other words, they're holding on to the things of this world. They're loving the things of this world. They're more concerned about their security and about their well-being and, and making sure that they've taken care of, uh, of themselves, that they have not loved God and they have not trusted God. And, and so their godliness, you know, by default is, is really just a bunch of rules and a bunch of regulations. They, they, they have missed this. And, of course, this is the heart of what it means to be a, a gospel-centered people not simply that we believe in the truths of gospel, but we believe in the person of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, has, when he has introduced this gospel, I'm sorry I'm going fast, I just looked at the clock. Paul, when he has introduced this gospel, usually I don't look at the clock at all. I love you guys deeply in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, when he has introduced this gospel, said that he has been appointed 
a herald of the life that is in Christ Jesus. And that is what we celebrate in the gospel that we have been given life in Christ Jesus. When I lived here in Albuquerque, I used to take my guitars to a, uh, a guy named uh, Dave Welburn. I don't know if Dave's still around, but he was a master, you know, at putting guitars back together. And as you walked into his shop, he had a little sign that was hanging, you know, up in the shop. And, of course, this was a long time ago, but uh, guitar repairs, $35 an hour. And then the very next line said, if you watch, $135 an hour. And if you help, $535, you, you know, an hour. And, of course, that is the truth of the gospel. We, we celebrate not, you know, some plan by which we take the law and we get our act together and we increasingly become more and more obedient to Christ. We celebrate what Christ has done through us, and, and it is from beginning to end of him, his transforming power. He has cleansed. I love, you know, the way that you know, Peter describes this. He describes our, our entry into this kingdom as the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. And these are incredible works of God. None of these are anything that we could. He rescued us at our very worst. He loved us when we were far from him. He does in and through us, through the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we could never hope to do. So it is about the power of God. And so that's why Paul in Romans would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is different. It is the power of God that, that saves and, of course, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. There's the power of God that begins in us and continues with us and transforms us. Um, not only do we live in difficult times, we, we have a rich heritage. Uh, Paul reminds you know, Timothy of his heritage. He said, you, however, have followed my teaching and my conduct, uh, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness, and we're reminded of how Paul ministered. He said to the Thessalonians, he said, we delighted not only to share the gospel with you, but our entire lives. We were with you. And this totally wrecks my image of Paul. He said, we were with you as a nursing mother caring for her children. He... He was gentle. He was nurturing. And when he said, we share with you, we delighted to share with you not only gospel, but our entire life, he was talking about where discipleship really happens. You know, so many times for us, discipleship is, uh, you know, getting in our comfortable cars, you know, listening to you know, nice, comfortable music, going to a very comfortable, you know, coffee shop, you know, showing the very best of ourselves, giving a few spiritual truths, getting back in our cars, and and driving back into life, which can often be difficult, can often be hard, and can often uh, be unraveling. Paul said, I invited you in from the very beginning. You know, not just to see my life and my teaching and my way of life, but, but, but my persecutions. And that's, you know, the very next line. My persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. So this is the environment you, in which you met where, you know, in, in Antioch, they organized against him and ran him out of the city. 
you know, in uh, Iconium where he has you know, run out of the city at night through a basket off the wall and finally he's stoned and he's left for dead. And he said, this is part of following Christ. Matter of fact, he's still pastoring when the very next line he says, indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In, in my you know, conversations uh, with uh, uh, people who are far from God, they're you know, getting in, increasingly hostile. You know, a few years ago, they would look at me, well, that, that's, so, that's so quaint. Uh, you believe, you know, some, you know, ancient, you know, book and ancient truths, and if that's good for you, that's, that's, that, that, that's good with us. You know, now it's, it, it, it's a little bit more, I find myself increasing conversations that are a little bit hostile because uh, they not only see us as quaint, they see us as, as regressive, dangerous, a threat, you know, to, you know, the, the, their, their view of the world. And, and so to identify with Christ is, you know, to, you know, suffer, uh, you know, some persecution. I, I love it when I'm on a plane and I'm having just a, you know, beautiful conversation with somebody and, and we're enjoying each other, you know, deeply. And finally they asked me the question, what do you do for a living? And of course, you really have to be honest about this when you do what I do for a living. Uh, so I say I'm a teaching pastor at a local church. And, and all of a sudden, they turn white and become very interested in what's outside the window of, of the airplane. Because we are invading their space, and it is, a, it is a hard place to be. And we will indeed, you know, experience you know, difficulty, we'll experience rejection, and we'll experience persecution. I also love this about Timothy, his heritage not only involved, uh, you know, Paul and his ministry, you know, his, his, you know, his heritage involved, you know, his home life, which if you go back to the very beginning, you know, of this little book, you hear wonderfully, you know, Paul describe this. He said, I thank my God who I'm served as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice and, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. And then when you come back you know, to uh, you know, chapter 3 and pick up in verse 14, it says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly become convinced of, knowing those from whom you have learned it and how from childhood or infancy or even, you know, young, you know uh, younger than, you know, a little five-year-old kid, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise through salvation and faith in Christ. What an incredible heritage. I love the two. His grandmother and his mother had a deep love for Scripture, but, 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 but catch this, there's much more than a deep love for Scripture. There is a living faith. They were embodying scripture. And so Timothy from infancy has been prepared for what he is seeing in Christ. These are the scriptures. And this is what I love so much about scripture. And it's incredible unified story. And I love about you know, the way that Jesus pointed us back to that story. When he's walking on the road to Emmaus and saying, Oh, you have slow of heart. Couldn't you see from the very beginning what God was doing and how he's building every step of the way. And all of scripture and it points to him. And it makes you wise, you know, for the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. 
And he builds on this, as rich as our heritage here is, with people like, you know, Bill and Gayla Reed, with people like George and Florian Sanchez. I don't know if you remember Angela Savini. She uh, could not quite make the uh, journey with us into more Reformed theology, uh, but boy, she had a passion for the gospel. And I guess, you know, deep in her heart, uh, she could never come to the point where she would let go of anybody, you know, in the belief that, uh, that, that if they only knew the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, how could they not respond to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, I, I suppose, um, you know, Charles Spurgeon was the greatest ever, you know, reform. Charles Spurgeon? Edwards? We'll go with Spurgeon today for the sake of the illustration. I don't have an Edwards illustration. Uh, <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon, you know, probably the greatest you know, Reformed pastor of all time, one of the deeply, you know, most deep, you know, Calvinistic, you know, preachers, you know, in England. You know, once confessed, he said, I, I guess I'm a pretty bad Calvinist because I often pray that God would save the elect and then after he has saved the elect that he would elect a few more. And uh, that, that was Angela Savini. And even though she didn't, you know, make the journey with us, you know, all the way in this, she was, you know, a deep godly woman who had to... But, but the heritage, you know, that, that Paul has in mind, he's leading up to, you, you've seen me, you've seen Lois, you've seen Eunice, you've seen the living faith in that. But here is a heritage that goes even deeper than that. Continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with these sacred scriptures which are able to make you wise through salvation in faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. Here it is, Paul again, he's innovating, innovating just a little bit. This is a word that we, we find in literature after this moment, but never before this moment. And it's the word that he uses, you know, to describes scripture, that it is God-breathed, two words that he brings together. And as beautiful and as quaint as those words are, he is taking us back so much further. You remember at the beginning of creation, you know, that God, you know, took the dust of the earth and he formed, you know, a man and he breathed into him and he became a living being. Uh, in both you know, Old Testament and New Testament, the word for wind and for breath are, are the same. And so when you hear these, you hear these working together whenever Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says the spirit is, is like the wind. He's describing the movement of God. And of course, if you move through this, you, you come into Ezekiel where he is describing the work of the new covenant where God will take out of us a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh and he'll put a new spirit in us. He'll clean us with clean, clean water so that we'll be clean. He'll put a new spirit in us. He'll put his spirit in us. And in an incredible illustration where he takes Ezekiel to this valley of parched bones. And he asks him the question, he said, son of man, can, can these bones live? And uh, the best Sunday school answer ever comes from Ezekiel. Only you know God. I'm going to leave that in your hands. And there is a wind that comes. And here breath 
when you hear that, that comes and animates those bones and sinew grows and, and there is life brought to that which is dead. And we hear the echoes of Paul in Ephesians. You were that. You were dead in your transgressions and sin, but God made us alive in Christ. And there's this moment in the upper room where Jesus is you know, about to go to the cross and he's releasing those disciples and he, the weirdest thing, he blows on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. So that's what scripture does. It takes that as dead and makes it alive. And that is our foundation and that is our heritage. So he, he, he tells us in the next few verses, these are amazing verses, that we have this amazing call. And here is that call. We, we're, we're called to preach the word. Um, verse 1, chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance in his kingdom. Oh, my goodness. I... How, how could you call on a deeper witness than what he's doing here? He said, I charge uh, you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Of course, if you have the old King James there, it's the quick and the dead preserved for us in the Apostles' Creed is the quick and dead, which means either you're quick or you're dead. Uh, but anyway, I really took the majesty out of that verse, didn't I? You know, sometimes it just happens while you're preaching. But anyway, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and the coming of his kingdom, stay faithful. Preach the word in season and out of season, when it's popular, when it's not, when it's convenient, when it's not, when it's being received and when it's not. And obviously this is a charge for you and your elders. Preach the word with great patience. And, and constant teaching. But there's also a charge for us. Not only are we called you know, to preach the word, we're called to receive the word. Verse three, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into the myth. Preaching is very crucial to a, uh, and to a great church. Um, but there is much more. It's not only those who will preach the word that makes a great church, it's those who will receive the word uh, that makes a great church. And Paul is simply saying, do not be this. Do not be a people who are so directed by your passions that your passions begin to determine how you follow Christ. Be a people whose passions who are shaped by scripture and be true to Christ. We're called to minister the word. As for you, verse 5, always, bear, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. I, I take it here that Timothy didn't, didn't really do the evangelism thing well, not natural to him. And, and of course, if preach the word is our ministry within the body of Christ, evangelism is our proclamation outside of the body of Christ. Uh, not only in the words that we proclaim, but in the way that we demonstrate, you know, the depths of the gospel and the way that, the way that we live. And, and, and certainly that is our, our, our call. Easy to come here, easy to be comforted by scripture. And we, we take the same scripture, we invade the world, you know, with the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, uh, we are called to remain faithful to the end. 
for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The last and the final move and a sacrifice was to pour out the libation. And Paul slowly sees his life fading away, being poured out as a thank offering you know, to God. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. In, in the original language, this just hits you just a little bit different. Uh, you know, as you hear this here, you, you hear Paul, you know, talking about, you know, how he has fought a fight, how he has run a race, and how he has kept the faith. In, in the original, if you look at it in the original, it, it's, it's those objects, you know, that, that, that come first. The, the good fight I have fought. The race I, I have completed. The faith I have kept. And what Paul is saying here is something, you know, is a little bit deeper and richer than I have, you know, I have done a good job in what it was for me assigned to do, which I think he's also saying. But what he's saying, what an incredible fight we've been called to fight. Fight well. What an incredible race we have been called to run. Finish well. He uses the same word for I have finished that Christ Jesus used for it is finished. And he's, what an incredible faith. We have been called to embrace, hold on to it well, in season and out of season. Are you guys uh, too young to have seen the Rocky movies? The Sylvester Stallone figure loves two things. He loves Adrian, and he loves boxing. Adrian is not sure whether she loves him, and she's really sure that she doesn't love boxing. And so in the moment when he is getting the life beat out of him, she finally walks into the ring, you know, able to look into her the very first time and just to see you know, what is happening, and she's in bloody and battered from the, the, the battle. And then, you know, remember, she looks him in the eye, and she says, when? When, Rocky, when? The good news for us is we've already won. The, the battle may be bloody, it may be hard, but the victory is already won. Fight a good fight, run a good race, and hold on, because it's a precious faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the beauty of the cross and everything that you have accomplished for us. We thank you that you have invited us into the, the, the wonderful, truth and hope of your gospel. May we hold on to it. May we cherish it. May we love it. May we live it. And may others find you as a result. You're a good and a holy God. Amen.